Welcome to episode 7 of the Therapy Explained podcast. I'm your host, James Lloyd. This week I'm joined by Dr. Christine Dunkley, where we speak about dialectical behavioural therapy, or DBT for short. Christine is from Yorkshire, England, and has worked in the NHS for over 30 years, initially as a medical social worker and then as a psychologist. She's a consultant trainer in DBT, specialising in mindfulness and emotions. She has published multiple books, including her most recent one, Regulating Emotion, the DBT Way, A Therapist's Guide to Opposite Action. Christine is a very passionate therapist and goes into great detail to explain the origins of DBT, its different components, and what each of these look like. Please remember to subscribe and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Dr. Christine Dunkley, welcome to the Therapy Explained podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, Christine, you specialise in an approach known as dialectical behaviour therapy, or DBT. Maybe if we start um, by having uh, by having you tell us what DBT is. So DBT is dialectical behaviour therapy, and it was started by a um, professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, a woman called Marsha Linehan. And um, she's just retired, actually, at the age of 75. Um, but she also retired at the age of 65 and just came back and did 10 years more work. So who knows whether we'll see her again. <laughs> um, now, in her youth, she was suicidal and she was in a mental health institution for a, a couple of years. And uh, another two years after that, she had treatment. And she said at the time, she if she survived, she would dedicate her life to the treatment of people who want to die by suicide. And uh, she did exactly that. So she has lived experience of a condition called borderline personality disorder. Um, it, it's sometimes called emotionally unstable personality disorder. Uh, many names... Um, complex PTSD has come into the mix as well. Um, but basically, people who have intense emotional intense emotional pain and engage in behaviours that try and alleviate that pain, but things that could kill them, um, or drinking, drug taking, um, starving themselves, things that as mental health professionals we try and treat. So um, she started by trying to do cognitive behavioural therapy with people and she realised that her clients often fought her. Um, so she realised even though I have a treatment that seems to be something that could address their difficulties, I'm not getting it across in the right way. And she looked at what was missing and she thought that what was missing was um, acceptance, that she needed to help people to, by accepting their difficulties, accepting that things were as bad as they said they were. And so she incorporated into her treatment acceptance strategies. And uh, she said, well, who's good at acceptance, you know? And it's the Buddhists. They're very good at acceptance. They've been doing it for, you know, hundreds of years. And so she trained as a Zen Buddhist. She's also a staunch Catholic. So that's an interesting mix too. Um, and she 
devised this therapy that incorporates acceptance and change and treats behaviours. So, the D in dialectics, if I had to give you a pithy definition of the D in dialectics, it means it depends. There's no one size fits all. When do you do change strategies? When do you move to acceptance? How much is too much? How much is not enough? It's all about the circumstances that you are in, in any given moment. And so that's what dialectics means. It means tailoring everything to the moment and being prepared to move flexibly along the parameters of anything that you do in order to get the best, most effective outcome at that time. So just one more thing I have to tell you about DDT and then we're probably, you probably know it. Um, so in addition to identifying that we had to incorporate acceptance strategies, um, she also realized that there was a skills deficit in regulating emotion so that clients she saw with these difficulties could not regulate the intensity of their emotional experiences. She's got theories about why that is. I won't tell you those today. Um, and so she, she said, we need to teach these skills. And they are skills that most of us have developed over the years, you know, naturally. But People with these difficulties have had many reasons why they couldn't do that. Um, and their emotions have become more intense. And so she tried to teach this in standard CBT and she couldn't because every time the patient came in, something new was amiss. And so she added in extra components of the therapy. First of all, she said it should be a team treatment. So in DBT, we work in teams. You may have six therapists. You also have, uh, so you have one individual therapist that works with you personally, but the team discuss your case on a regular basis, and that's the consultation team. So you don't just get stuck with what only that one person knows. You get the whole benefits of what the whole team know. You have a skills training group in addition to your individual therapy. And you also have out-of-hours telephone contact with your therapist because Marsha Linehan says, you know, um, crises don't always happen nine to five, Monday to Friday. They happen at other times as well. So the consultation team are at your service. You have your individual therapist. You have your skills training group. You have your telephone contact. And she also added one more component to this program of care. And that was um, extra kind of psychoeducation for the environments in which the client might find themselves. Their family environment, their, um, it might be a school environment, it might be the environment of the CMHT, the, the community health team who's treating them. But so that we all understand behavioural principles and how to stack the deck in favour of the client not harming themselves in some way and behaving more effectively. There you go. <laughs> it's uh, quite a comprehensive uh, explanation, uh, Christine. I think you did a brilliant job of that. It's a kick-ass um, treatment. It's a big treatment because our clients have big problems. So it should be big. Mm. It should be big. 
I think I came across a, a quote from your own book, Regulating Emotional DBT Way, um, that struck me was the level of intervention has to match the level of pain. Um, and as you've just described, although it seems like, I'm not sure, was she primarily a CBT therapist? I think she was a, a clinical psychologist, Marcia Lenehan. Yeah, if I'm not she was. And, and she did CBT. Mm. And, she, and her book is actually called um, CBT Therapy for a Borderline Personality Disorder. And the dialectical mm. behaviour therapy label came later on to differentiate it from standard CBT. But she is a CBT therapist. I think I read somewhere before that uh, I think maybe she wanted to name it, it at a time, but the publishers weren't really sure if that yeah. was going to pass, that maybe CBT would be more malleable. Um, but just coming back to your dis your description, um, so it was as if CBT alone wasn't enough, and she, she I guess, knew from maybe her own experience that uh, it's going to take a lot more, and out of that was born, uh, I guess, a whole kind of range of changes. Um, you know, so changing, the, uh, putting a focus on uh, skills, tolerating emotion um, and training up a team or having a team approach. So if I could just uh, ask you, you know, what uh, made you decide to specialise in uh, DBT modality? Um, well, uh, <clears throat> so I started off as a medical social worker and um but I'm quite old now, so I'm in my 60s now, so I'm going back a long, long time ago. Um, and I started in 1982 working in um, uh, medical social work. And I initially started working with people who were terminally ill. And then I started working with people who were in the accident and emergency department of a big city hospital and came across through my work, um, responsibilities for people who'd come to the hospital who had taken overdoses or who had harmed themselves in some way and ended up in A&E. Um, and I realised that those people, a lot of them had sexual abuse histories. Um, and so I thought, well, they need some counselling. I went off to do some counselling training to help with these um, sexual abuse uh, cases problems that they had um, and actually if you deliver counselling to people who are at risk of harming themselves for their sexual abuse history often their um, self-harming gets worse because they can't tolerate that and so I was looking for the mis missing link and then here I found this behavioural treatment that stabilises people so that they can tolerate the kind of exploration of things from their past. Um, so I I trained in DBT and then I just felt like that was my spiritual home without a shadow of a doubt mm. and, I, and I love it I absolutely love it mm. and it, there's a real interesting theme of the theme of the two sides to the coin that kind of comes up so the, both the change and acceptance the east and western um, philosophies and uh, even the individual and group components of it you know the one-to-one -one and the group interventions if we could just come back to talk about the change in acceptance um, and I'm not sure is there a hard and fast answer to this but I wonder how you strike that balance between change and acceptance right so um, the thing about striking the balance which is what DBT is all about all about is a bit like a seesaw the balance is that you only ever have to strike the balance between change and acceptance 
on one thing in one moment and then it's gone. So you can't say how do you strike the balance generically because you have to apply it to the situation you are in. So, you know, it might be one way of doing it if you're at an airport and your plane is grounded and you're not going to fly. How much do you have to accept that and how much can you change it? Um, it's very different if, for example, you were applying for a job and they uh, lost your application. You know, you would you would maybe move more towards the change end if that was the situation. So in any given moment, you have to decide how much acceptance do I want to apply from radical acceptance at one end, which is the most difficult things to accept. And yet there's no change option in that moment. 10 minutes down the line, there might be and, and you know, an hour away, um, 10 years away, uh, 25 years away. You know, look at Nelson Mandela. He had to accept, he tried to change things and he had to accept that he was in prison for 29 years. And then he was able to change things again when he got out. So, you know, it's a moving target. It's always a moving target. And that's why at the heart of DBT is mindfulness because you cannot accept the moment unless you can train yourself to be thoroughly in it. Mm. So it's almost as if that uh, in in some sense of the words that you can only either do one or the other um, to accept or change or maybe it's a combination. <laughs> there are your two options and it's trying to find out what that balance is and that maybe some people get caught in uh, almost possessed by the idea of one or the other all I can do is change when maybe we can't change or all I can do is accept that there's nothing I can do when maybe there is something that we yeah, can yeah and, and it's actually it's not even black and white like that it's much more about degrees so it's like I could mm. set accept it a little and change it quite a lot I could you know I could set mm. bits of it or it's you know um and I'm right in the center of this and the it's almost like two lines, or rather one line, and they're poles at either end. But right in the centre, things almost do coexist. So um, I often use this example, and it's in the book. You know, how many people would accept that this is true? I love my job, I hate my job. You know, that's it. And it depends, right? It depends what just happened in this last moment, whether you're moving more towards hating it or more towards um, towards liking it. The, the thing is that the circumstances alter that. But when you love your job, all the things you hate about it don't go away. They don't cease to exist. They still remain. And vice versa, you know, when you go the other way, all the things that you love about your job don't go away so it is a it's about those shades of gray and we know that inflexibility psychological inflexibility is really associated with poor mental health so if we can teach people to work these lines to move and flex and and accept that sometimes things are murky and complicated instead of well how do you do it is it black or is it white do I accept it or do I change it but rather to understand the complexity of it and that's 
it, it gives them back a sense of themselves when they're trying to work this out within themselves, moment by moment. Mm, so increasing that flexibility yeah. um, being such a core component of it. It actually sounds quite a bit like um, acceptance and commitment therapy in ways. I'm not sure. Um, are you aware of ACT? Yes, yes. Page? Mm. Um, so I guess in some ways it's like that, but in some ways I'm assuming that it's different. Yes. I mean, obviously, um, Stephen Hayes is majoring on the acceptance end, isn't he, with a lot of his techniques um, because the change end hasn't been working for people. So um, that that seems very logical that that's where he would go. And there are some people like Sue Clark, a professor in Dorset before she retired. Um, she was working very much with um, DBT as the stabilizing treatment and then moving on to ACT. Uh, so people passed through DBT and then they went on to do some ACT as a kind of secondary treatment. And just coming back to the skills part of DBT, I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit more about what they are. Right, so there are four modules um, in DBT skills training, and these are the uh, these are the kind of formal skills. What Marsha said was the reason she added a skills training group is the worst possible time to learn a skill is at the time that you need it. You know, the worst time to learn to fly a plane was if your pilot had a heart attack and you had to take over the controls. Like, don't learn to fly a plane like that. That's the worst possible time. You should learn it when everything is calm, when you come to learn it as a curriculum and you learn the skills as you would learn anything at school. So that's why she separated out those skills. And she put down um, four modules. Two of them are change modules and two of them are acceptance modules. So the acceptance modules are um, mindfulness, and that's her biggest kind of arsenal of skills, if you like, is the mindfulness skills, and you do those frequently through the training. Um, so mindfulness. And the other acceptance skill is distress tolerance. Now, I just want you to pay attention to the name of this skill. It's called distress tolerance tolerance it's not called distress elimination it's not even called distress reduction it's called distress tolerating tolerance so if you do distress tolerance your distress is not designed to go away it's just designed that it stops you making it worse by harming yourself or doing something extra so it's getting through distressing situations and those are the two acceptance strategies and then on the change end, we have got emotion regulation, and that's the ability to increase the amount of emotion you feel when you need it, or decrease the emotion, amount of emotion you feel when you need it. So to increase and decrease in order that the emotion roughly matches the situation you are in. So if you were in a fire and your house was on fire, a lot of emotion is desirable there. Keep your emotion really high, raise the alarm, get everybody out. Um, if you are um, in a job interview, you want to be calmer. So, you know, that would be, so we want to increase or decrease emotion. It's not just about reducing emotion. It's sometimes about increasing. It's sometimes about decreasing. It's about living authentically and learning to love your emotions and to read your emotions as messages rather than just say I don't like that feeling I want to get rid of it 
Um, and then the last module is interpersonal effectiveness, and that is helping people to deal with tricky interpersonal situations, predominantly asking for something effectively and saying no to things effectively. Um, so those are the four modules. If I was to kind of ask for some, I mean, you have given some examples and I guess mindfulness, maybe it's probably more well known about kind of trying to focus on the present and um, maybe even the interpersonal skills you mentioned. It's, it almost sounds like assertiveness training in a sense, you know, yeah. being able to ask for things yeah. and be boundaries. Um, the distress tolerance, could you give us an example of maybe something practical, a practical application that you might work with someone? Right. So distress tolerance is good when you are in a situation where time passing will probably solve it. So if your um, neighbours are banging on the walls because they're putting a kitchen in and you go around and say, can you stop banging because it's driving me crazy and they don't. And you, um, you know, you have to tolerate it because the kitchen has to go in, right? So um, you might as well distract yourself. So in the distress module, it's distress tolerance module, a lot of the distraction skills, like distract yourself with activities, with contributing in your environment, um, with, you know, watching different films, something like that, changing your emotion, all of those things. Um, so that would be a good use for distress tolerance. It might be that you're going for an exam um, and you have got real exam anxiety, but you know, you still have to do your exam, right? You can, you don't get a chance to get out of that. In which case you might use the tip skills, something like plunging your face into iced water. That will change your physiology. And we've got loads of different ideas for different situations that would help you. Um, also, and I'll just add this about distress tolerance. Also in the distress tolerance sit the radical acceptance skills accepting the moment as it is and not how you would like it to be not how it should be but accepting that in this moment everything has arrived exactly as it is because of reasons that made it happen that way and so it is as it is and that they sit in the distress tolerance as well how about emotional regulation what might that look like? Right. Well, the bad news for us is that the distress tolerance skills will change your physiology very quickly. And that's why I think, and that's why I wrote the book, Regulating Emotion the DBT Way, because as a supervisor in um, DBT, I often saw that people said they were going to do emotion regulation with clients, but actually were coaching distress tolerance or distraction skills, and that will not work not in the longer term. It's called distress tolerance for a reason. It doesn't take your distress away. And so emotion regulation is much more time consuming. It's teaching people more complicated skills. You have to learn, first of all, to stop and identify which emotion you are in. Um, and for clients who are emotion phobic, for whom their emotion is incredibly painful, they don't want to hang out with those emotions that much, and rightly so. So they might not even know the difference between being angry and being sad or being ashamed and being um, fearful. They may not know those differences, and so we have to teach them emotional literacy. And then we have to say, does the level of emotion I'm in match the circumstances that I'm in? And this is 
if you if you know the DSM-4 criteria for borderline personality disorder, one of them is a disturbed sense of self. Well, it turns out if you push your emotions away, you become empty inside because that's where your emotions live <laughs> inside. And you don't know yourself as well because you haven't got this input from your emotions. And so we're asking people, for these circumstances right now that you're in, how much emotion, how much anger, for example, do you want to have? You just had a row with your spouse. Your anger is up at 80%. Do you want it at 80%? If you do, that's fine. It, it, you know, you could have it at 80%. If you want it at 40, let's go down. But although we can teach you how to bring that emotion down with very practical strategies, we also want to teach you, don't invalidate yourself. Don't go down to zero. There's probably a really good reason why you're angry here. Just try and work it out. Like, of all the things that my spouse might do, is it the worst? Do I want to be up there? Do I want to like, right, I'm going to bang in with 100% here. Do we want to get it down? Is it like a 20%er? But don't go down to zero because that would invalidate you. That would say you have no right to be angry. And that's not where we're going with DBT, emotion regulation. The same for your sadness. If you're sad about something, there's probably a good reason. I'm more often with my clients trying to get their sadness up because they're pushing it away so effectively. So your emotions are there for a reason. And in DBT, we're not going to tell you you shouldn't be feeling what you're feeling. Um, and at the same time, we're not going to say, and if you feel terrible, that's where you've got to stay. We're going to say, you work out where you want to be with this emotion and we'll help tell you how to get it down or up. I'm wondering, uh, Christine, when people are feeling so overwhelmed, uh, how, uh, you know, I imagine it could be difficult to maybe rationalize or use these skills when they're feeling out of control. Um, is that the case or is there yes. a way that you can work with that? Right. And this is a great question. Um, so Marsha found that too, like exactly what you're saying. When you are so overwhelmed, how on earth are you going to do this? So first of all, she had in the group uh, skills class, you learn the skills in a set time every week when it's calm, when it's not specifically related to your difficulties so that you have this battery of skills in your skill set. Then in your individual therapy, we do a, a fairly um, kind of uh, interesting intervention here. So we look at the last week since you saw your therapist the last time. And we say, what was the most problematic behavior that you engaged in during that week? The place where you, you know, were closest to dying or the place where you harmed yourself or whatever was the worst thing you did to yourself or in your environment during the week. Now, those are flags to us to tell us where that emotion um, is the highest. So in some ways, even if you didn't do it, we still treat urges to do those things. You might not have engaged in um, the problematic behavior. You might not have cut yourself, but you felt like cutting yourself. That's the same to me as a therapist, whether you felt like doing it and did do it or didn't do it, because I'm treating the emotion underneath. So that's my flag. And then we look at what led up to that 
and what were the consequences of it. And we apply behavioral principles to that to say something made you feel that way. Let's see if we can work out what it is. And let's see if that urge was under the control of what went before you were reacting to something that happened before or what went, what came after you were reacting to something that came after. And then we give you a new set of behaviors to engage in and you practice them with your, with your therapist. You practice them in the therapy room and it tricks the brain in a sense to laying down a new history. So if you and I rehearse what you could have said to your partner and we role play it, you now have laid down some new neural architecture associated with that skill. The main reason, the main predictor of future behavior is past behavior. You know, what did you do in the past? That's what you're more likely to do if that situation crops up again. And people don't use skills because they haven't got a history of using skills. So if in the therapy room you use this virtual reality capacity of the brain to mock up the situation as realistically as possible, and then you give a chance for the client to rehearse new ways of doing it, it's behavioral with a big B, a really big B, then... Um, then they have this alternative, the alternative that they did in the real life and the alternative that they mocked up with you. And the brain is super smart at this. Your brain will work it out like, oh, yeah, that's how you do it then, is it? Oh, I see, you know. And your therapist will give you corrective feedback. They'll say, change the tone of your voice, change your posture, do it like this, try it like that until you get the result you want in the therapy room. And then that is more likely to go back out into the real life. There's so much there, Christine, um, and uh, it's a brilliant explanation. And I think uh, it might be for Marshall and herself, she described it as practicing putting up your tent in your back garden before putting it up when you go up on the side of a mountain and it's raining. Yes, yeah, she did. She did. That's a great metaphor. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, some of these skills that so so many of us take for granted, maybe because we were taught them either in the culture we're in or because of our parents when we we're younger, that we just take it for granted. And when other people can't do them, we think, well, why can't you just do it? But maybe some people were never taught these skills. And, you know, it's just learning them and reinforcing them like any habit. And I really believe that we all have the ability even if it's not to perfect something, to at least be very good at it. That's so true. It's such an optimistic therapy and it's so untherapisty in some ways because it says, here's a set of skills, we just give them to you. And, and it's not like I'm an expert and you come in and I expert you out of your difficulties. It's like, no, actually it's a skills deficit. Here they are. We can teach them to you. Give it a go. Um, and there's some techniques involved in that as a therapist in how to do it. But I think she packaged it together brilliantly. Hmm. I think uh, having, the, uh, having the experience she had really shaped her understanding and uh, her ability to deliver something that was so well fitted to a certain set of symptoms. Um, I, I listened to something recently, I'm not sure how relevant this is to DBT, but it may be, and it's something that I found really interesting. It was a, it was a talk on personality traits, and they were talking about willpower, and the guy that was delivering the lecture said that there's not actually much of a difference between person to person in like raw willpower or ability to, to you know, stop ourselves from 
eating something or doing something that we know is unhelpful for us. It was more that I thought, I'm not sure, I think the personality trait was maybe conscientiousness. They were better at planning their life around triggers. So they were better at not having alcohol in the house or they're better at avoiding going to certain places where they'd know it would trigger from. So it's not so much that they have any better willpower, they're just better at managing it, which uh, really kind of struck me as that, yeah, that's, it's more about managing it and thinking, oh, I just can't do it. You just need to be able to maybe prepare for it better. I'm wondering, is that part of DBT because of the uh, habits or behaviours that mm-hmm. can um, be destructive? Yeah. And Marsha herself says um, that... We're not relying on a willpower model in DBT um, where we're just saying resist these urges. We're rather looking at the circumstantial bits of the thing that creates the urge and we're tweaking those. So it's just a rephrasing of what you just said, um, James. So I, I think that you are on it there. We're not saying to people you just lack willpower, whether you're drinking, whether you're starving yourself, whatever. Well, people who starve themselves have incredible willpower to go against that natural urge. So we we are rather looking at what led up to and what are the consequences of doing this thing. And we can make it easier for you. We really can. Um, mm. It's a very positive spin on it, isn't it? That like you have the ability in you um, that everyone has that ability and so often it's just if you can just trust the process and take a bit of a leap of faith with it mm-hmm. you might find that okay this starts to stick and I can em- employ it and then you can build some momentum from there that's so true that's so true and do you know I, I, in light of the fact that I, I imagine many people may benefit from more emotional regulation or mindfulness, do you find yourself employing components of DBT therapy with clients who may not suffer from BPD? Yes, I do. And and actually all my family and many of my friends have read the book and, and said, oh, I find this really interesting and helpful. So um, we all are in the same boat we all have emotions, they um, are intense at times, we can all benefit from learning any of these skills and using these skills and every DBT therapist will tell you they use them themselves and they use them with clients with a range of difficulties. Um, the, Marsha has moved away from looking at a um, diagnostic model and more just looks at any behaviour that you want to change. So if you have a behaviour you want to change, this is a great set of skills to help you do that. Hmm. I don't think I should be alone on that. Uh, I recently spoke to Marie Tierney, who's a IFS therapist um, in Ireland and internal family systems, also has moved away from the diagnostic model. It's more treating the person than what those cluster of symptoms might be. That's exactly right. And and Marie is a, a DBT trained therapist and uh amazing amazing at dbt too i'm wondering if you would prioritize or even have a favorite dbt skill um well uh, you might think because i wrote my book about um the skill of opposite action i wrote a whole book on one skill you know which just shows how rich dbt as a therapy is and i i feel certain that it is marcia's own experiences that enabled her to bring that richness to the therapy so the skill of opposite action is undoubtedly my favorite Mm. 
And could we just could you just tell us a little bit more about that, uh, Christine? I know we've yeah. maybe touched upon the two degree, but just to expand on that opposite action. Yes. So um, opposite action sounds a bit trite and as though, well, if you're sad, pretend to be happy. Um, and that isn't how it is at all. Every emotion has a signature um, a set of signature features. Now, I have to be really careful here to not offend any of the international researchers on this because um, they will tell you that under fMRI scanning, there's no um, component of any emotion that's just unique to that emotion um, because you can laugh when you're happy and you can giggle when you're nervous. You know, you can shout when you're angry and you can shout for joy. So it's it's rather like a signature, that your signature is a, a signature that comes together in a moment when you need to sign something with letters that you use in other words. Um, and it's it's slightly different every time you write your signature, you know, depending on what you're writing on, what you're writing with, whether you're tired, whether you've signed loads of things. Um, so it, it changes and yet it is recognizable. So every emotion is recognizable through a set of signature features. Um, and they are your temperature, your posture, your gesture, your facial expression, your voice tone, um, the actions you use in the environment, your breathing, your muscle tone. All of these domains come together in this signature set that allows your brain to say anger, sadness, you know, shame. And when that happens, your brain hormonally supports that emotion. So it suffuses your bloodstream with chemicals that are um, related to that emotion in order to help you out here. So if you know the signature feature of any emotion and you act opposite to that exact signature feature, then your emotion will come down a notch. So if you change your breathing, if you change your temperature, anger, for example, is a hot emotion. So you'd want to cool yourself down. Sadness is a cold emotion. You would want to warm yourself up. Um, some emotion muscle tones are floppy, like sadness is floppy. Um, and some are tense, like anxiety is tense. Um, and so if you know the signature feature and you act opposite, voice tone is incredibly important. If you get someone to change their voice tone, if they feel guilty and they say, oh, I'm so sorry, I, I'm, I'm really sorry that, and you say, say it, but say it in a non-guilty voice, affirm your voice up, your guilt will come down. It will come down, holding your head up. So all these are clues to your brain as to what emotion you're feeling. And you can down-regulate by domain by domain, you know, temperature, muscle tone, all of those. By tweaking those, you can alter the amount of emotion you feel quite drastically and quite quickly. Um, and so it's, I'm not supposed to say it's like a miracle, so I never said that and I'm not going to say it. <laughs> it is fascinating though. It is so fascinating. It, 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 mm. And the, there's that dyadic nature that it just runs through DBT. So it's always the, what is maybe the equal and opposite or what's the other side of this coin. And, and if someone wanted to train in dbt uh, christine and this is something that i'm not even personally i've always wondered because i've looked into it myself before and i've only ever seen it 
you have to train as a as a group or a team now that might just be in ireland but if someone wanted to train in dbt can they do it individually and if so how would they go about that yeah, uh, well it's difficult to train individually because it's difficult to be dialectical by yourself right you know you can only see things the way that you see them you you can't it's very difficult to be dialectical by yourself you i can only see things with the background that i have got as a you know, 61-year-old, white, um, middle-class woman um, with the education that I've had, you know, I can only see things through my own experiences and then what I've read or heard from other people. Um, and so if I paired with you, look how much extra we've got. You know, you've lived in a different country. You have, you, you're a different gender to me, different age to me. Look at the richness we bring to the table. Let's add a third person in and look at the richness we bring there. So you cannot outperform the group. Um, and therefore we try and get people to treat, train and operate in teams. Now, if you have a team that you can join, and now that we have um, online consults, I mean, we've the pandemic has brought a new opportunity in DBT that you can now find an online consultation team. Um, then you can do training, foundation training, to join that team in their consultation meetings. And then you can have your clients too. Um, however, the core model of DBT is that a community of therapists treat a community of clients so that it's not just that I have the benefit of all the therapist's views, but I have the benefit of their views on my client so that because they go into skills training with my client, they see a different side of my client and can represent them differently when we have our discussions. So if you are a client, you definitely want that big team treating you. You don't want to be stuck with one person because of the unipolar you know, approach that one person has. And so you want to be treated by the treatment team. You, you get more. Mm, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it even makes me think about how as individuals, that's one of the benefits of being in a relationship. You know, someone can point out, you know, well, you're maybe thinking about this the wrong way or maybe yeah. it could be more helpful to do things like that or even to be part of a community. Well, it's it's interesting about um, about raising children that nature has it, that opposites attract, you know, that you are attracted to someone who has a different personality to you. And that's borne out in many of the, um, you know, all the dating sites and everything. They try and match you up. You, you wouldn't be attracted to someone who's identical to you. And that's because your children have the best advantage if they have had more than one model of how to approach something. So when parents say, oh, we need to be consistent, actually, you're better to be inconsistent because if you're very consistent, your child learns a no is a no. But when your child learns to come to mummy, and if mummy says no, to go to daddy, they're learning to go around another route, okay? And then adulthood, they will be more successful than the person who just got the no. And that was the no. So, you know, don't worry about that consistency thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll your kids sure get more. Your kids get more. <laughs> <laughs> they get more when they have more, more operational demonstrations. There's more than one way to, to, to kill a cat, you know? Don't kill cats. I, I'm not recommending killing cats on this <laughs> podcast. Do not kill cats. I never said kill cats. But there's more than one way to go about it. Mm. 
it's importance of diversity of opinion isn't it that no one opinion yeah. is going to have all the answers and that's why you want to be able to op be open about things and to share our takes on it so that yeah. we can come to a maybe a better understanding uh cumulatively yeah um we are out of time for today christine uh -huh. that was uh, an extremely enlightening talk and uh your pleasure to talk oh, to me thank was, you uh, so, so helpful i i loved it thank um, you so much i'm a real enthusiast and i i'm appreciative of people and doing things like yourself, which gets the word out there on many therapies. I think every therapist should have an enthusiasm for their own therapy. Mm, well, you've certainly shown your enthusiasm today, Christine. <laughs> Thank you.